Well, we've been talking about the Trinity, and a few weeks ago we started, and we saw that the main teaching of the Old Testament is that there is one God. Uh, that's really where the Bible starts, is by showing us that there is only one God. And then the New Testament, of course, it affirms that as well. Numerous times in the New Testament it teaches uh, the very same thing, that God is one. However, the New Testament also reveals that God exists as three distinct persons, uh, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We looked last uh, Sunday at the New Testament's teaching that the Father is God and that the Son is God. Uh, and that's where we ran out of time. Today we're going to pick up with the Holy Spirit. And as we did with Jesus last week, we're going to start with the implicit statements uh, before moving to more explicit statements of the Spirit's deity. So, Psalm 139, verse 7 is where we'll begin, where David writes, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. So the Spirit is said to be omnipresent. Uh, many times in Scripture, the way that the Bible teaches the deity of the Spirit is by uh, ascribing to the Holy Spirit attributes that only apply to God. In other words, you're not going to find very many explicit statements, the Spirit is God. Um, but what you will find is the Spirit described in ways that only apply to God. Does that make sense? I don't know if, okay, so one of those would be uh, the Holy Spirit, right? We call Him the Holy Spirit. Well, as we saw several weeks ago when we talked about holiness, that is an attribute of God. Um, and really, it's only, you know the holiness of God is His set-apartness, His godness, as we said. And so... That word makes no sense, really, described to the Spirit, unless it is affirming the deity of the Spirit. But here in Psalm 139 is another instance where you have omnipresence being attributed to the Spirit. Uh, and verse 7 is really the key. Where shall I go from your Spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? So he's equating there, wherever the Spirit of God is, God is present. <laughs> Okay, and so, and then he goes on to say, you're in heaven, you're in Sheol, you're everywhere that I can possibly go. So omnipresence, um, an attribute of God is applied to the Holy Spirit, therefore the Spirit is God. Another example, Hebrews 9 verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now, what attribute there? is applied to the Holy Spirit that's only true of God. What do you see there? What's the, what's the, the attribute that's applied to the Holy Spirit that is only true of God in that verse? Eternity. Yeah, right. Eternity. Okay. God is the only one that has always existed. God's the creator of everything that exists now. The only, the only thing prior to creation was God alone. And so if the Holy Spirit is eternal, that is separating him from everything that's created, and if God's the only one that's eternal and the Spirit's eternal, then the Spirit's God. So again, you can see an, an indirect way of, of seeing there's an attribute applied to the Spirit, eternality, that is only true of the creator. And so therefore the Spirit is God. Another example, Job 33, verse 4. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty 
gives me life. And you see even in the parallelism there that the Spirit is equated with the Almighty. Uh, but he says that the Spirit of God is the one who gave me life. <clears throat> who gives life to humanity? Well, you look at Genesis 1, it's very clearly God. And so again, we can see through the attribute of, of creation that is applied to the Spirit that he must be God. Now, there are clearer statements than this. We don't have to use indirect reasoning like that for everything. For example, 1 Corinthians 3.16, uh, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Now, what, what was a temple? A dwelling place for God, right? It was a place where God's presence was found on earth. And so if Paul says, you are now the temple of God, and then he goes on to say, God's Spirit dwells in you, okay? Um, what's being said there, basically, I, I'm God's house, and the Spirit lives in this house. <laughs> Therefore, the Spirit is clearly God. He's equating the two in that, in that very verse. Another, another good one is uh, Acts chapter 5, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Remember, they lied about how much they gave to the church when they sold their field, that whole thing. Uh, but Acts 5 verse 3, Peter says to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? So who did Ananias lie to? Holy Spirit, right? Next verse, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Okay, so verse 3, he says you lied to the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, he says you lied to God. Therefore, Holy Spirit is God. Um, now, there are those are just some texts to show the deity of the Spirit. There's probably less text for the deity of the Spirit than there would be the Father and the Son. Uh, and I think James White gives a good explanation for why that is in the Forgotten Trinity. He says there is a reason why the Holy Spirit does not receive the same level and kind of attention that is focused upon the Father and the Son. It is not his purpose to attract that kind of attention to himself. And this is important to note. Um, you know, yes, we call this the Bible God's Word. But if we want to be more specific, right, who inspired Scripture? The Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's role, as seen in Scripture, is to shine the spotlight on the Son and to glorify the Father. He's not about drawing attention to himself. And so if that's his job, and he's the one who moved the writers of Scripture, we would expect that what he would do in Scripture primarily is focus the attention on the Father and the Son. Uh, he goes on to write, Since it is the Spirit's role to direct the hearts of men to Christ and to conform them to his image, he does not seek to push himself into the forefront and gain attention for himself. One result of this voluntary role of the Spirit in the work of salvation is that the evidences of his personality and deity are not as numerous or obvious as those for the Father or the Son. He is not up front and is not spoken of as often as the other persons. Some take this as evidence of inferiority, but as we have noted before, Difference in function does not indicate inferiority of nature. Um, so what he's saying there basically, and we'll get to this more later when we talk about the submission of the Son to the Father and those types of things, but roles within the Godhead does not mean one is lesser than the other. Okay, the fact that it's the Spirit's role to draw attention to Christ and to the Father does not mean that he's somehow less divine than the other persons. That's just his role. Okay, 
Um, and one of the analogies people often use, and again, in a few weeks we'll talk about this, is you know, in a marriage, a husband and wife take on different roles. And we can argue about what those roles should be. But the fact of the matter is, uh, both people aren't doing the dishes at the same time. Both people aren't going to the, you know, we have different roles. Um, some people take this certain responsibilities. You know, if you want to be typical in American culture, right, the wife does a lot of the cooking, the husband does the mowing of the lawn, whatever. And wherever those lines are divided, you have distinct roles that you take on. Now, does that mean one of you is superior to the other? Well, of course not. <laughs> it's just to function, of course, you're going to have different roles. You're not going to be bumping into each other doing the same things. And so the same thing would be true of the Godhead, that in God, you know, the Spirit has a role, the Son has a role, the Father has a role, and they're different roles. That doesn't mean one is better or more God than the other. Um, but again, we'll talk about that more later. So to recap kind of where we've been the last couple of weeks, we've seen there is one God. The Bible also teaches that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. And next we'll see these three persons are distinct from one another. Because at this point, you might be tempted to think, uh, if there's only one God, and the Bible teaches that the Father, Son, and Spirit are all God, then the Father is the Son, and the Son is the Spirit, and the Spirit is the Father, and so on. They're, they're all just you know different uh, manifestations of one person, or um, whatever. Or maybe there are three different names that the Bible uses to describe one person. That is not true. Um, the Bible very clearly distinguishes the persons uh, in many places. We'll start with Matthew 3, verse 16. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So clearly there you have three persons distinguished from one another. Jesus is in the water. He sees the Holy Spirit descending visibly on him. And simultaneously, the voice of the Father is heard from heaven. Okay, so this can't just be Jesus, the Father, and Spirit, they're all the same person. That doesn't work because you have, you know, how can Jesus see himself as he's seeing the Spirit descending on him? How can the Father talk about Jesus if they're the same person? So clearly you see a distinction between the persons there. Uh, Matthew 7, verse, no, sorry, Matthew 17, verse 1, the transfiguration. Uh, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and his, uh, John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Okay, clearly, these are not the same two people. Jesus is still talking when this cloud overshadows, and a voice from heaven starts talking about Jesus. So we can't say the Father and the Son are the same person. They're just different manifestations at different times, because simultaneously we see both of them talking and one is talking about the other. So again, clearly distinctions are made there. Uh, we see this also in the way that when Jesus prays, right? How can we make sense of Jesus praying to the Father if they're the same person? Is he talking to himself? And this is one of those things 
people that don't understand the Trinity will often accuse Christians of, of believing things like that, that Jesus you know, was schizophrenic or something, he was talking to himself. Uh, no, there are clear distinctions between the Father and the Son, as evidenced by the fact that one prays to the other. John 12, verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, Jesus is uh, praying here, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So again, you see Jesus praying to the Father, the Father responding audibly, and people around him heard it. It's funny, if you keep reading, uh, some of the people were speculating uh, that it was just thunder, you know, because they couldn't make sense of what this was. Uh, but clearly the persons are distinguished uh, once again. You also see the distinguishing of the persons in the fact, in the way that they relate to one another. Okay, so in John 15, 26, when, when the Helper comes, whom I will uh, send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So Jesus is saying, when I ascend to heaven, when I go back to be with my Father, I'm going to send from the Father to you, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. Okay, This is exactly what we see happening in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. The Spirit descends on uh, the, 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 the Christians who were in Jerusalem. So Acts 2 verse 32. This Jesus, this is Peter speaking, God raised up, and of that we are all, uh, we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and remember, in the New Testament, God is typically shorthand for the Father. Okay, so when it says Jesus is at the right hand of God, it's saying he's at the right hand of the Father. Uh, continuing on, he's exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So he's just affirming there what Jesus said in John 15, that when Jesus goes and ascends to the right hand of the Father, that Jesus would send the Holy Spirit to indwell believers. Now, how does any of that make any sense if they're all the same person? If these are just different modes of God or something? You've heard the analogy, you know, Jesus is like water. Sometimes it's steam, sometimes it's ice, sometimes it's liquid, depending on the state or whatever. That doesn't work with God. Uh, God is not, doesn't just appear to be Jesus sometimes, and other times he appears as the Spirit. No, we see simultaneously uh, God existing in these distinct um, subsistences is probably the clearest word, but persons, and uh, and even in the way that they relate to one another. So how can God pray to another person of God if they're the same person? How can God send, how can one uh, person send another person if they're the same? Okay, so I, I hope this is making sense. There's clear distinguishing in Scripture between these three persons. Now, there are some verses that seem to imply the persons of God are not distinct from one another, and this is where people get very confused. John 14, 8, for instance, Philip said to him, to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So, some would read that as Jesus is saying, I am the Father. There is no distinction, we're the same. But the next verse clarifies that when Jesus, what Jesus is saying here is that when he speaks and when he acts, he's not doing so of his own volition. Uh, he is doing and saying the things that the Father is guiding or directing him to do. That's his point there. And so when you see Jesus, when you hear Jesus speak, you are seeing and hearing from the Father's authority. It's not just Jesus. 
uh, doing his own thing. That's the point there. It's not saying Jesus is the Father. So the next verse, verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does, the, does his work. So there you see the explanation of what he's actually saying there. He's not saying I am the Father. He's saying the Father directs me and guides me as to what I'm doing. So when you see me act, you should take it as from the authority of the Father. Uh, two verses later, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Now, if Jesus meant, back in verse uh, 9, I am the Father, how would it make any sense in verse 12 that he says, I'm going to go to the Father? Okay, <laughs> Clearly, that's not what he meant by verse 9. Uh, there are clear distinctions between the two. Another text that seems pr problematic, this is probably the hardest one, is John 10. As far as just if you take a simple reading of it, uh, this would be the most problematic. John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. So it seems like Jesus is saying there, I'm the Father. Now, in Greek, the verb is plural. So literally translated, it would be, I and the Father, we are one. So even in the way that it's worded, uh, there's a distinction between persons. But let's look at the context here to see what he means. Starting in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So what's being said here is that Jesus and the Father are one in giving eternal life to those who follow Christ, meaning they are, um, they are one in protecting the sheep, right? Jesus, Jesus uh, uh, takes, you know, gives them eternal life. They, they won't perish. No one's going to snatch them out of his hand. And the Father also is one in this purpose. That makes sense? It's talking about unity of purpose in protecting the sheep. It's not, talking, it's not saying Jesus is the Father. It's saying the Father and Jesus work together in, in unity in the protection of, uh, of God's people. So to recap uh, where we've seen here, there is because we're about to kind of conclude and tie everything together that we've seen the last several weeks. There is one God... The Father, Son, and Spirit are all God, yet they are distinct from one another. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay? And this understanding of the Trinity isn't something that the church invented. It was clearly taught throughout Scripture. All of those points that there's one God, that the Spirit, Father, and Son are all God, and that those persons are distinct from one another, and yet one God. All of that is clearly taught in both the Old and New Testament, more clearly, of course, in the New Testament. So one God three persons who are all God. And the way that this has been characterized typically is one being and three persons. One being of God in three persons. We'll talk more about those words here in just a moment. Uh, if you want a good verse on this, how, how is it that God is one in three? Uh, you know, Because what happens is we tend to get out of balance on that and emphasize one to the exclusion of the other. We either say, well, God is one, and so he can't be three, or God is three, and so he can't be one. But there are some verses where you can see the threeness and the oneness of God in the very same verse. For example, Matthew 28, verse 19, uh, the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 
He doesn't say baptize them in the names of the Father, Son, and Spirit. So there's one divine name, right, Yahweh, and yet it is the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. The oneness, threeness of God, both in the same verse. Now, let's try uh, for the rest of our time here, and this is where we get into dangerous waters, we'll try our, as best as we can to figure out in what sense is God one and in what sense is God three, and how do we understand those things. Um, and I'm going to give you some terms that have been used throughout church history to try to explain and differentiate uh, that God is one in one sense and three in another. This is common language uh, used. I'm sorry, the common language used, as I mentioned before, is being in person, right? God is one being, three persons. The problem is we, we have some baggage with the word persons, right? Because you and I don't know any person that isn't also one being. And so even my saying one being and three persons, it kind of sounds weird, right? Because it doesn't work very neatly with the way that we think of uh, personhood. <clears throat> but let's start with some terms for divine oneness. Three primary terms that have been used. One is substantia. Okay. Um, anybody want to take a crack at what that would be in English? Substantia? What does that sound like? Substantia, yeah, that's true. Uh, a noun, how about a noun? Substance, right? Substance, okay, so God is one substance. Uh, what is substance? Well, substance is like the stuff that a thing is made of. <laughs> I don't know if that sounds blasphemous. Uh, so God is one substance. Another word is usia. <clears throat> usia, essence in English. Uh, God is one essence. When we talk about essence, we're talking about the fundamental nature of something. Yes. Usia? Well, it's Greek, so I, I don't know. If you want to anglicize it, it would be, I guess, O-U-S-I-A, something like that. Uh, this was actually, interestingly, a, a very hot debate in the uh, Council of Nicaea over the language there, because there were people like Arius that were saying, denying the deity of Jesus, basically, saying he was of a different usias, essence, than the Father. That's what really sparked the Council of Nicaea, was that debate. And so then you had others like Origen who tried to say, uh, there was a distinction between homoousias and homoousias. The one means of a similar essence, the other of the same essence. And, uh, and so the, the similar essence guys would be like Origen, people that um, wanted to say Jesus is, is really close to God, but he's not quite there. <laughs> and then Athanasius, who eventually won the day there at the Council of Nicaea, said, no, he's homoousias, same essence. Um, anyways, that's, the, that's your church history lesson for today. So homoousias, homoousias, one letter difference in, in, in Greek, but very important distinction. Uh, another term for divine oneness, being, and this is, again, probably the most common, um, and it may be the most helpful. Uh, I think being and essence are both helpful words. Substance, for me, doesn't do a whole lot, um, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. Terms for divine threeness. Again, these are terms that have been used throughout history uh, by the church to try to, to explain the way in which God is three. Uh, the first would be person, and again, person in this sense, persona was a, a law term to describe an individual. So um, when we speak of the three persons of God, again, we've got to try to disconnect from the baggage that we have with the word person. 
because every person that you know is also one being. And so we tend to, to bring that in our, in our understanding. Three persons, yet one being. And again, um, that word person can cause some confusion. Here's not, a couple of other words. Maybe these will help you. I don't know. Uh, hypostasis. This is from the Greek word uh, prosoton, which means face. Okay, so three faces. Uh, trying to articulate that there are three distinct um, instantiations, <laughs> I don't know if that helps, of God. Three fa picture it as three different faces of one being. So maybe that, maybe that helps. Um, last one, subs uh, subsistentia. Subsistentia. Again, this is a word for divine threeness. In English, it would be subsistence. Um, that's the word for me that I find most helpful. I use the word person because a lot of people, when you hear subsistence, you just, oh, what does that mean? Um, so typically, I would use the word person. But in my own thinking, subsistence helps me to think of one essence subsisting in three persons or in three faces. I don't know. That, that works as best as we can for, for me. Uh, James White writes in his book on the Trinity, and I don't have this typed up, uh, so you have to just listen. Another term is offered to help define the word person, that being subsistences. Why suggest this term? <clears throat> because we are wont to read into the term person all sorts of physical limitations that should not be thought of at all when speaking of the Trinity. Many people, when they hear three persons, visualize three men standing side by side. Yet this is not at all what we are talking about when we speak of person. But then again, does subsistence mean anything to most of us? Uh, what are we talking? What we are talking about are personal distinctions in the divine being. We are talking about the I, you, he, found in such passages as Matthew 3, where the Father speaks from heaven, the Son is being baptized, the Spirit descends as a dove. While trying to avoid the idea of separate individuals, we are speaking of the personal self-distinctions God has revealed to exist within the one indivisible divine essence. Uh, Hank Hanegraaff suggests, I think this is helpful, uh, when speaking of the Trinity, that we're talking about one what and three who's. So one uh, being or essence that is God, three who's would be the Father, Son, and Spirit. There's only one God, that single divine essence subsists in three distinct persons. The three persons exist simultaneously as distinct persons, yet one God. Uh, here's an image to try to help as best we can. And this, this goes back uh, 1900 years. Okay, so don't try to improve on it. Uh, you see one God, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and yet the, the three persons are not one another. Okay. This is basically what has to be affirmed to stay within the realm of orthodoxy when speaking of the Trinity. That the Son, Spirit, and Father are not pictured in Scripture as being one another. They are distinct, and yet they're all God. So there's one essence, three persons. Each person uh, is a subsistence of the whole or entire essence of God. So we're not saying Jesus is one-third of God Right, the Father's one third of God, the Spirit. No, that's that's partialism. We'll talk about that more in a couple of weeks. Uh, in interestingly, a big debate this week on Twitter uh, was about the SBC president who had a, a statement of faith that said 
the three persons were equal parts of God. And everybody blasted him, rightfully so, because that is heresy, technically. Um, so we're, we're not saying the Father, Son, and Spirit are all a part of God. No. They're all, they're all God. They all have the entire essence of God. While the Son is God, the Father is God, there are adequate enough distinctions between them to say that the Son is not the Father. And so the divine essence of God subsists wholly and indivisibly, simultaneously and eternally in the Father, Son, and Spirit. That's another important thing to note is simultaneously. So it's not that God sometimes appears as Father, sometimes He's Jesus, sometimes He's Spirit. No, again, in the baptism, what do you do with that? Uh, all three are right there at the same time. So simultaneously and eternally, because they're all, all three persons are eternal, right? Uh, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. We just read in Hebrews, the eternal spirit. They all go back infinitely. Uh, so this idea that the son was created by God, or by God the Father or something like that, it doesn't work. Uh, they have always existed in this fashion. Uh, again, one more quote from James White, and then we'll watch a very brief video to try to help as best we can. He says, I believe in the Trinity because the Bible teaches the doctrine. No, the Bible doesn't use the specific word Trinity any more than it uses the specific word theocratic or Bible. Instead, it teaches the doctrine by teaching the three pillars or foundations that make up the doctrine. The first pillar is that there is only one true God, Yahweh, the creator of all things. The second is that there are three divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. Three persons who communicate with one another and love one another. Finally, the third pillar is the teaching that these three persons are completely equal and sharing in the divine being. So the Trinity um, is not a contradiction, right? The law of contradiction says something can't be one, at the, one thing and at the same time be the opposite thing. We're not saying God is one and three in the same sense. We're saying God is one in one sense and three in a different sense. And so this is not a logical contradiction. For example, uh, somebody can be a father and a son, right? You can be both of those things, but not in the same relationship. Okay, so, so we're saying God is one in one sense and he's three in a different sense. The whole essence of God is in each Trinitarian person. We're going to finish with just a brief clip here. Uh, I... <laughs> I was at work. Uh, some of you know I work at Amazon at a warehouse there, and uh, my job is very boring, incredibly boring. And so I listen to stuff while I'm working. Uh, and I was listening to a theology lecture on the Trinity a few, several, probably a couple months ago. And right in the middle, I had to stop it and rewind because the professor said something, and suddenly things just clicked in my mind. So I'm hoping maybe by playing this, it will click with you too. Now I think I played it for my wife when I got home because I was really excited, and she said that makes no sense to me. So. It may not do anything for you, uh, but this is the best explanation that I've come across of God's oneness and threeness. And in case you can't hear the person who asked the question, he's basically asking the professor to differentiate between essence and person, right? What do you mean God is one essence and three persons? And this is his explanation. Explain the difference between an essence and a person. You went over the beginning. Yeah. Between the oneness and the threeness, um, essence refers to, when we use the term essence or substance, we're thinking of the nature of a thing, um, uh, the, um, the, the nature of it in the sense of its fundamental existence, okay? 
Um, so in my case, I, my nature is human. I am a human being. So I am in, I am a, I am a, a particular instantiation, a, a particular example of human nature. And as a particular example, I am a person. I am a subsistence of human nature. Okay. The difference with God is essence and persons are the same being. Okay. God is the only one in his category. He's the only one in his class. Uh, in, the, in the the classification of being, God is the only one in that category, in that slot. So he is one essence, and all of the divine essence subsists in these three persons. Okay? So the Father is all of God, the Son is all of God, the Spirit is all of God. Okay? That's a very difficult thing to explain. I don't know if that helps. That helped me when I heard it. Um, and maybe that was just, I don't know, late night hours of thinking about this. I don't know. But for some reason, when he explained it in that little clip, it just clicked in my mind. Oh, I think I understand. So now, now comes the scary part. We have like two minutes. Questions. <laughs> Questions. Yes. Now, why do you ask asking just a practical question. Like here I am being all uh, academic and trying to dissect these things, and she just asks a real practical question. Who do we pray to? Uh, I think the, the teaching in Scripture is the Father, that we pray to the Father uh, through, the Spirit, through the Spirit and in the name of Jesus. But if you want to just be simple, you know, Jesus says in the model prayer, pray our Father in heaven. Um, when you see Jesus praying, every example, he's praying to the Father. You know, you never see Jesus praying to the Spirit. Um, so my understanding is, yes, we, we pray to the Father. I think that, can anybody think of an example in the New Testament where somebody prays to Jesus or prays to the Spirit? I can't think of one. Maybe. I, nothing's coming to mind. Um, but certainly, overwhelmingly, what we see is pray to the Father. I mean, so I, I think that is the right understanding. So, good question, though. Good practical question. That actually affects real life. <laughs> This is news to Malachi, but okay. <laughs> You're good. Yeah, so what... Oh, maybe I was unclear. Um, what I was illustrating there was not so much God. I was, I was trying to illustrate how something can be one in one sense and multiple in another sense, meaning um, somebody can be a father and a son, but not in the same relationship. When it comes to God, however, I'd have to think about that more. Uh, Because we need to distinguish. So here's the problem with the All analogies of God break down eventually if you press them too hard. What you just said about Malachi works for Malachi because he is 
one person, one uh, individual person. But even though Malachi may be a son and, let's say, a brother, okay, he's both of those things in one person, Malachi doesn't talk to Malachi. Malachi can't send Malachi. Like, you see what I'm saying? So it doesn't quite work the same. Yeah. So whereas in God, right. So there is a, a difference in the sense that you have a father and you have a son in God, and yet the two are distinct enough from one another to be able to talk to each other, to love one another. You know, one sends the other to earth. You see what I'm saying? So it, ultimately, this transcends our categories. We can't, nobody has this all figured out. But um, I am careful about analogies, and maybe I shouldn't have brought that one up. I don't know. Because ultimately, analogies end up a lot of times causing more confusion. Um, and so, you know, maybe at the end of the day, what we should say is, okay, we, we can understand these things about God. God is one, uh, three persons that are distinct from one another in relationship with one another, all eternal, all fully God. And that's the best we can do, <laughs> you know, and, and at the end of the day, we all have questions that we can't answer. I have lots of questions that I, you know, so go ahead. You had a question? Yes. What does it say there? Yeah, okay. So that's at Stephen's death where he sees Jesus visibly right at the Father's hand and he talks to him. I don't know if that's the same as praying. I don't know. That may be a kind of a unique instance. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're close there. That Jesus is our, our mediator, right? He's um, the intercessor. He's the go-between between us and the Father. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. He ever lives to make intercession for us. Um, so yes, that going, praying to the Father in the name of Jesus, my understanding of that means that yes, because of uh, the imputed righteousness of Christ on our account, we have access to the Father. We can come boldly, as Hebrew says, to the throne of the Father because of our high, high priest Jesus. And so, yes, it is, it is um, in Jesus' name that we can go to the Father. Mm Holy Spirit goes to God on our behalf. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't say goes on our behalf. I'm trying to think of the exact wording. Um, he ever lives to make intercession for us and groanings which cannot be uttered. It's, um, yeah, some of these, <clears throat> as far as the, the roles of the persons and how that all works, again, there's, there's some answers I don't have. Uh, but it seems like... <clears throat> Basically, um, we pray in Jesus' name through the Spirit to the Father. And I don't know that I can get more specific than that. Um, but it's sort of like asking the roles of the three persons in creation, right? You see God the Father created everything, and yet Colossians says that, or John 1 says, you know, all things were made by Christ. 
Uh, and yet Genesis 1-2, you have the Spirit of God involved. He's hovering over the face of the waters. How does all that work? Um, I guess we could say God made every, you know, the Father is sort of like the architect. The Son is the agent of creation, like the construction worker or something. And the Spirit is the, uh, the guy who writes the blueprints or something. I, I don't know. I don't know exactly how to articulate that, but basically that they all work together and yet they have different roles. Um, so God creates uh, by Jesus through the Spirit. Uh, but more specifically than that, I don't have, you know, that's the best we can do. So we are out of time, but I, I do want to make sure this is clear. So if there's other questions, you had your hand raised or were you just may not have meant to. Malachi, did you have something? A couple of you have been looking at me quizzically, so I've been trying to get to you, but okay. Um, at the end of the day, the, you know, if we have more questions, we can talk about this next week. Um, so if you're thinking of something right now and you say, well, we don't, you know, this is a long question, write it down. Uh, type it in your phone or something. We'll, we'll talk about it next Sunday. Uh, but the Trinity, very important doctrine um, and important that we understand it correctly as best as we can, but at the same time recognize we're not going to understand it fully. Uh, that's just the way it is. So next Sunday, uh, we will be talking about basically misconceptions about the Trinity, uh, ways in which we get the Trinity wrong. Uh, we'll talk about the water analogy, the egg analogy, all of those things, and how those are not helpful and uh, not good analogies. <laughs> and so we'll talk about those more next Sunday.